0: Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such a power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did the disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, And saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. He said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought a man to him, a man that was mute and demon possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled, saying it was never seen. It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest." Let's pray, let's pray together. Lord, we want to learn everything You want us to learn today. We pray, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would teach us. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to be open to Him, changing us and confronting us and convicting us and all the things that He does so well. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be soft and not hard, but open to You and what Your will is for us. Thank You that You use Your Word to bring us into maturity. We commit this time to you as a holy time and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Verse 1 tells us, so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Verse 1 says he came to his own city. It's not referring to Nazareth. It's referring to Capernaum. He originally had preached to, to his own people in Nazareth. And as we'll see when we get there in another gospel, that they rejected him after he read from the scroll. They tried to run him off a cliff, but they were not able to. And so now Capernaum becomes his home city in a sense. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we already read this earlier a few weeks ago, it says this, And having Na- leaving Nazareth, He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he's moved now. He left the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee after healing the demon-possessed men that we saw last week. And that man wanted to come with him. He said, no, go back to your city, as we'll see in other Gospels. And then he sailed all the way across from, from east to west. Over That's where Capernaum was. And though he, now He's ready even more to heal and to minister and so forth. He doesn't spend any time begging the people over on the other side to listen to Him. He's very comfortable with honoring people's free will and letting them come to Him when, when they are ready. As it should be with us in, in our preaching of the Gospel. Let people be ready. When they're re- willing to come, they come. Jesus never begged anyone to follow Him. So today we're going to see a lot of healings. We're going to see them, Him uh, heal multiple people. Israel was very sick physically. I mean, we see, wow, there's just so many people that are, that are sick. And it wasn't just because there wasn't modern medicine. You know, back in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, the Lord said this, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. So he said, if you obey me, then I will keep you healthy. It doesn't mean that they would never get sick, even if they you know, were obedient as much as they could be obedient. But the point is Jesus is healing people that are very, very sick and it's, the nation in general, was physically sick, more so than they normally would have been if they would have been obedient to him. Proverbs three verse seven and eight says, "Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones." So just because a person's sick, obviously doesn't mean that they have sin in their life, that was very popular back then, but belief, and in some circles, unfortunately, uh, it, that's taught as well today. But just because that's true doesn't mean that obeying the Lord doesn't further provide health for us, because it does. So Israel's state of, of all these sick people is is a reflection, in part, in part, to their spiritual condition and how obedient they had been to God up to that point. Verse two. Then behold, and, and the word "behold" means carefully consider they brought to Him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now there are some details which Matthew leaves out, which were provided to us in Mark and Luke. And we won't get into all those details, but we do need to understand how Jesus saw their faith because He did see their faith. Now He could see right into their hearts and see their faith, but there's something that happened here uh, that isn't really stressed or focused on like it is in the other accounts of the same miracle, and that is that four men lowered this paralytic through the roof of a of a house, <laughs> and that 's noteworthy, so you have this paralytic lying on a bed, not like a full bed like we think, with a mattress and a box spring and all that it's It was a mat, and he was lying on this mat and and notice that Jesus saw their faith in verse two. He wasn't focusing on the faith of the paralytic. For all we know, the paralytic had zero faith. We're not told that he had any. He could have could have had just as much faith as those friends. But that's not what God focuses on here. He focuses on the faith of those friends. God can use the faith of others to heal people. You can pray for someone and they could not have very much faith, but God can honor your faith and heal that person. That's we see an example of it here. And so that's good for us to know because we need to be men and women and young people of faith. God's going to emphasize faith all through this chapter. And just because there's the abuse of it in certain parts of the body of Christ where faith is overemphasized and people teach that we should have faith in our faith and that if we're ever sick, then it must be because we don't have enough faith. And if we remain sick, that's because it's our fault or something. That's false teaching. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times for it to be removed. It was God did not honor that prayer. There are people in Scripture that died from sickness. So it, it there's that's that's not true. But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. Now, that may seem weird to some of you youth that are in here, never heard that before. But it's, what it's saying is we can't overreact just because of the bad stuff that's out there. We can't throw the whole thing out about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're told that in Hebrews. God has set things up purposely. And I love to walk by sight and call it walking by faith. I'm really good at it. I'm sure you could be good at it as well. And so often we walk by sight thinking that it's spiritual because it's wise and we gotta make sure that, you know, we're very, very careful and unless something is right there in front of us and we can see that it, that God has provided a certain way or whatever that, that, um, you know, we're not gonna go forward. What faith is, is, is not some metaphysical thing that we, what we gather like, like energy. You know, the false teachers teach that faith is a force and it's conductible like electricity. It's a metaphysical thing. That's false. All faith is is trust. Faith is trust. And God wants us to trust Him and trust His Word. The Israelites were not allowed to take the 12-day or 14-day journey from Kadesh Barnea to the Promised Land. That was a 12- or 14-day journey. did not allow them because they did not believe what He said. That He was going to give them that land. They believed the report that came from the spies that that were untrue that were, they're against what God had said. And he, and he let them go through that whole wilderness experience because they did not trust him. So faith is very, very important. We're going to see it over and over again. Now, Jesus says something in this verse that's very unexpected to the paralytic, to the friends, to the Pharisees and the scribes that were there, to everybody, to the readers, to, I mean, every, he said something no one expected. He said, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And again, I want to mention and I want to remind us that Jesus ministers to every need that we have. Even ones we don't even realize that we need. And He deals with things, in these. and I want to point them out every time we come to them, not one word is wasted from the Lord Jesus. He didn't ever say, um. He didn't say, oops, I shouldn't have said that. He didn't say one syllable too little or too much. Every word that he said was for a very specific purpose and we could pass over it, and many do, but we're not because we're going verse by verse word for word here practically. So he says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Son, son, you are beloved to me. I care about you. Someone cares about you. Who knows how many, how many people had rejected him and, Considered him an outcast, especially in that culture that believed that if you were sick or suffering from something, it must be that you sinned or your parents had sinned. Jesus will deal with this in another place. the disciples will ask him, did this man sin or his parents? He said, no, neither one. This happened so that the son of man may be glorified and he healed them. So this this man needed to hear from Jesus son. And he says, be of good cheer. Now, we don't talk like that. He's he's saying be encouraged. Son. Be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. I care about your heart. Jesus isn't just focusing on the physical. Do do we see that here? Are you seeing? He's not just focusing on the physical. He's focusing on the emotional, the mental, and of course the spiritual when He says, your sins are forgiven you. That's the last thing that they would have expected Him to say. In fact, look at the, the, the religious leader's response in verse 3. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. See, Jesus knew this man's greatest need was spiritual. He knew that. He dealt with the most important need. Whenever he ministers to people, he usually deals with their most important need first. And when he's in a room, then and now, he usually ministers to someone with the greatest need in the room. That's important for us to know. Because as we go into rooms, as we go into areas and we live our lives and we find ourselves in various places, we want to be like Jesus and thinking about and considering what is the greatest need in this room? I need to focus on that. I need to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. Maybe He wants me to address the greatest need in this room right now. And the greatest need was Jesus forgiving this man of their sins because he could be paralytic, be a paralytic for the rest of his life. Or he could be healed, rather, and live the rest of his life unsaved and then go to a Christless eternity. And that would have been a tragedy. He deals with the most important thing first. And it's possible that his sin had contributed to, to some of that physical uh, condition. But very likely, or just as likely, it, it didn't have anything to do with it. We don't know. We're not told. People assume that, but they can't they do so with Scripture. So these religious leaders, they say, this man blasphemes. Now, this is the first time we'll see some opposition in the book of Matthew from these religious leaders. And it will continue. It will continue in our chapter, and it will really start taking off once he feeds the 5,000 after that event, as I mentioned in the very beginning. In all four Gospels, what really starts the year of opposition, because he's right now in the year of obscurity. There's a second year, the year of opposition. And, and what really starts that is is after he feeds the 5,000, they want to make him king by force. And he starts saying things to weed out the crowds and so forth. That's when the opposition really takes off. But they're starting to oppose him here. And notice their expression of opposition was internal. You see the word within? They said within themselves. And it wasn't just one of the scribes. It doesn't say one of the scribes said within himself. It says that the scribes, plural, said within themselves, they were thinking something. And they were thinking something with an exclamation point. <laughs> you see that? You can think with, with exclamation points. This, we used to do it in traffic, unfortunately, sometimes. <laughs> exclamation point. This, these people were mad. They were so upset. This man blasphemes. You remember those comic book bubbles, those little thought bubbles. They have a big bubble here, and it's a little smaller bubble, a little smaller bubble, a little smaller bubble, and it, it's describing what your thoughts are. And and that's what's happening. If we could have a picture Bible, we would see these leaders thinking this man blasphemes in their mind, and he knows that because he's God in human flesh. He was he's divine. And if, they, if he wasn't God in human flesh and he wasn't divine, they would have been correct. No man can forgive another man's sins according to God. You can forgive men of, of sins they've committed against you, but you can't forgive sins that they committed against God. Only God can do that. They were completely correct. The problem is, is that this was God. <laughs> so he could do it. And, and so they would have been right, but they weren't. And so Jesus in verse four says, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. How were they thinking evil in their hearts? Because they were saying that Jesus was not legitimate. That He wasn't the true Messiah. He'd already given them evidence that that He was the Messiah. They were coming to the wrong conclusion. It was evil of them to think evil of Him. And so He calls them on it and He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Remember, everyone's hearing this. How would you like Jesus to say with everyone else hearing in the room? Why do you think evil in your hearts? But He did. He wanted to confront them. Which one was easier to say for Him? Was it just as easy to say arise and walk? I mean, it has less syllables. <laughs> or, or your sins are forgiven you. You see, I don't think anybody knows for sure exactly what he was saying here, honestly. But I think most people agree that he's saying I'm God in human flesh. Either one, either thing is, is easy for me. I could do one or I could do the other. The one thing that in a way where it's, it is easier to say, your sins are forgiven. You is that? It's not verifiable, is it? No one can say that didn't work. <laughs> but when you say stand up, arise and walk, either that happens or it doesn't. When it happens, you see it with your eyes. When someone's sins are forgiven, you don't see a black spot on their heart turn to to white. <laughs> you don't see anything. So he says, which one is easier? And and so he he did both for them because he knows that. Well, just so you may know, and he says that. He said, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says, arise, take your bed and go to your house. Take up your bed and go to your house. Verse 8, now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. It's a great miracle. They marveled. I'm not going to get into Captain Marvel again. Don't worry about that. They marveled and glorified God. That's what He calls us to do, right? To do good, our good works before men that we may glorify our Father in Heaven. Jesus told us to do that. He told us to do good works so that people will glorify God, not glorify us. False teachers and people that are not mature do things so that it brings glory to them and put the attention on them. One last thing with this miracle before we move on. It's very really rare, it maybe the only time in the whole New Testament that Jesus is the only one talking here. Paralytic doesn't say anything that we're told. Those four guys that lowered him down didn't say anything. The even the the, the religious leaders, they didn't say anything either. They thought something with an exclamation point, but they didn't say anything. Jesus knew their hearts. So this whole thing Happens with Jesus initiating everything. I mean, they initiated in the sense of lowering him down, but the whole thing that was going on, Jesus doesn't wait for those guys to yell, "Hey, could you do something with this our friend here or whatever?" The paralytic going, "You can, you can heal me. I know it." Or like we've seen in other times, and we'll see in this chapter, we'll see it. There's no dialogue going on. He just sees what is needed. He knows the situation, and he acts. And it's important for us. He doesn't need us to ask. He wants us to ask. He wants us to seek. He wants us to knock. We've already seen that. But for some reason, if we don't, and we're weak or whatever, He doesn't need that for Him to move, for Him to do what only He can do. He can initiate something and heal us and do a miracle or save us or whatever without anyone being a catalyst for it or doing something to cause it to or initiate that. He can just come right in because it's his heart. His heart is good. He wants to do the right thing. How many of us have had (laughs) him do things for us and we we didn't ask for it? We didn't want it. We didn't petition. We didn't pray for it. He was just a good God in our life. How many here? Let's bring glory to him right now. Every one of us. Two hands. There's like, yeah, we're all over the place. We're all on a roller coaster together. You know, He is good. And maybe you're here today and you're struggling with whether He's good or not. Look how good He is in this passage. They don't ask Him one thing. They're interrupting His teaching. We're told in another passage, another account of this, that He was teaching. They interrupted everything. He doesn't mind being interrupted. Who of us that have children minds being interrupted when our child really, really needs something? They love to interrupt us, right? Sometimes like, is this really important? But when it's really important, we're fine with it. And we'll initiate. And we will help them. We'll do what we can to help them. Even if our children don't say a word to us, we see the need. We see they're hurting. We see something. They're discouraged. They're in the room. They don't know really what to say. But we know there's something wrong. We initiate it. We get that love from Him. He loves to do it. So we need to know that about Him. He already wants to bless us. He already knows our need. Verse nine, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. I wish every one of those were like that. That was pretty easy. Comes up to him, follow me, puts everything, leaves everything, follows him. Pretty simple. Matthew is not, he doesn't think it's a complicated thing. It's not a complex thing. We've already seen someone initiate that calling, say to Jesus, "I'll follow you wherever you go." And then Jesus, you know, said, "Hey, are you sure you want to do that? Have you counted the cost?" Matthew instantly moves. Jesus calls him while he's sitting down. He gets up and leaves his tax office. All of us have a personal story and encounter with Jesus. This is the man that wrote this gospel. Here he is telling his testimony and. In his own gospel, we're told in another gospel account that his name was Levi, son of Alphaeus. He was Jewish. And that complicated things with him being a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated. In Israel, at that time, they're probably hated way more than how they're hated today. And, you know, people hate tax collectors or whatever. But it was, you were aligning yourself with Rome. Rome occupied Israel. And they wanted freedom from Rome. And what they would do is they would, if you want to be a tax collector, you would bid, kind of like, you know, an auction for the contract. And the contract was worth so much money. It would pay you so much money, or I mean, the, the, it, was, it was worth so much money in the sense of what you're going to be paying Rome. And then, after, if you had that contract, once you collected all the money, much like a paper out, I had a paper out, and the, you know, you had to pay your bill, and everything above that with tips and everything else, you got to keep. So there was a built-in, not for my paper out, but for this situation, there was a built-in uh, incentive to be corrupt. And it's written in some records that they even taxed the amount of fish that you caught. So here. If that's true, he's calling Matthew, and Matthew's already taxed Peter and <laughs> taxed the other fishermen there and already had this adversarial relationship potentially. It's like, oh, I don't need to introduce you guys. You guys know each other already. I don't know. But, but it was they were hated. They were considered traitors. They were considered thieves and so forth. You, they, they, could, they were outcasts. Their families were outcasts. They couldn't be a judge. They couldn't be a witness. And they were excommunicated from the community. They were disgraced, and their family was disgraced. But Jesus wanted him. Jesus sought him, chose him. The people would have been shocked. Can you imagine the disciples <laughs> are you wait wait, what what's he saying what's he He's asking him why he's telling him to do what? No, no Jesus is a tax collector, Maybe you don't understand. yeah, he's at a tax office. I think he understands that Matthew is a tax collector. Wow, an outcast of society he's calling those. People too? Yes. And that's who God calls us to reach out to. Everybody. He's calling everybody. And He calls us to reach out no matter who they are, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter who thinks what of them, we need to be bold in preaching the Gospel. We can't prejudge who we're going to preach the Gospel to. Amazing. So he rose and followed him. Pretty simple. And then we're told in verse 10 that now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat with him and his disciples. Now this was Matthew's house. We're told in another gospel, this was Matthew's house. And notice it says many tax collectors and sinners. That's a big house, which means that Matthew was wealthy, which made sense because he was a tax collector. There wasn't very many poor tax collectors back then because of how the system was. So we don't know if how these, these, these religious leaders saw or knew about this or whatever, but they came. They came there. Jesus sat at the table in the house with many tax collectors and sinners. They came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Have you gotten that question? Why do you eat and spend time with those people? Why do you do that? That can come from the mouth of a Christian. They don't understand our Lord. We're told that he is the friend of sinners. The Lord Jesus was loved by the unbelievers. How could that be possible? Because they were sinners. Why would they want to be around him? How many sinners want to be around us? That's a good question. See, there's a way to be appropriate towards an unbeliever where you love them, but you don't condone their sin and they know that, but you're still loving them and you're still reaching out to them and you're enjoying who they are even though you don't don't agree with what their lifestyle represents and you're with them and you love them unconditionally and there's something in you that they are attracted to. It's not a something. It's a someone. It's Jesus. Have you ever had people just, they know there's something different about you? You can tell. They don't just say it. Sometimes they say it, but a lot of times they don't say it. And they just know there's something different and it just bothers them. And some, I've had people say, what is it about you? Like, Well, there's a lot of things about me. What are you referring to? <laughs> My son laughed too hard at that. <laughs> what is it about you? I'm a Christian. Oh... And that, that can that can cause many different reactions. But love. Jesus loved them. And the key to being around unbelievers, which we should be, I mean, that's a good searching question. How many of us have had unbelievers around? How many of us have invited unbelievers to our house? How many of us have spent time with unbelievers? You have to be around them to get to know them, to sometimes to preach the Gospel. You can't just do it from a long distance or write letters to people necessarily. You have to be around them. So, why did that, that, how did Jesus do it? He wasn't being influenced. That's the key. He was the influencer in the situation. So, in any given situation, I need to be listening to the Spirit and knowing by God whether or not I'm going to be influenced negatively or am I going to be able to influence and not be affected by that. Of course, praying the whole time and asking for God's grace, and it's all because of Him that we don't sin no matter how mature we are. So Jesus did it, and the Pharisees didn't understand it. These are the prideful religious leaders, and they ask, why does your teacher, he says, your teacher, not our, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it even goes deeper than that. In that part of the world at that time especially, and it's still true today in some respects, when you ate with someone, there was like a mystical connection between you and them. You would take the food and you would both ingest it. It would become part of you, and then you would be united in a mystical way, and they believed that. So when you ate with someone, it was a big deal. So to the Pharisees, and this wasn't a biblical teaching, it was just a, a something that the culture came up with. So for the Pharisees looking at it, Jesus is becoming one with sinners by eating with them because they're both digesting the same food. And so they asked the question. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, verse 12, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. We're called to be around sinners. We're called to be influencers. And they are sick. Don't get mad at their symptoms. Don't be stumbled by their symptoms. If someone is really sick, you don't get offended by their symptoms. You want to get them to a doctor. And we have to be around people's sinful symptoms a little bit to have the, the exposure to them to preach that gospel so they can hear the way out. But If we're condemning their symptoms, they're never going to hear the gospel from us. So we, we, we're we not winking at sin. We're taking a stand at times. We're speaking up for the truth. I'm not saying be silent about God's Word and the standard and all of that. But we have to put up with some stuff to be around Him. Jesus, there were many things that Jesus didn't respond to when He was around unbelievers than what He did respond to. And the mature believer can be around unbelievers and just don't deal with that. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. Now the Spirit's saying, I need to say this about that now I'm leading towards the Gospel. I mean, there's you overlook so many things when you're around unbelievers when you're handling them appropriately. Jesus had to overlook all kinds of things. And He has to overlook all kinds of things to deal with us even as believers. Because He's perfect. And we still sin. So He says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I'm sure they enjoyed that. (laughs) I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's quoting Hosea 6, verse 6. God's people back in that time, they were pretty good at bringing sacrifices still. But they had forsaken mercy. They had abandoned mercy because they gave up the knowledge of God and the truth. So Jesus is saying, go read your Bible. Here you are all self-righteous and everything. And you're doing all these sacrifices and you're tithing all these things and you're going through all the outward motions of everything and you're you're not even merciful at all towards anything that's going on. You're not merciful towards people that are that are trapped in sin and bound by sin. Later in Matthew, we're going to see him talk about you don't take loads off of people. You put loads on them. And if you were true leaders in Israel, if you were the true leaders that God had called you to be, you'd be taking loads off of people instead of putting loads on them. God desires mercy. Are we merciful when we're around unbelievers? Not condoning their behavior, but we're merciful with how they're trapped in it. Are we merciful with giving them, being willing to give them the solution to their sin? That's mercy. Now, another situation happens beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. John's disciples fasted to express their humble Repentance. The Pharisees were fasting to get man's approval, to look good, to look religiously on top of things and righteous and holy in front of people. And we already looked at that when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. So John's disciples, they were not trying to trap Jesus or come against Him. They're asking a a sincere question to Him. And He explains that there's no need for them to fast and mourn. Right now, because I'm with them, but there'll come a time when I'm gone and I'm taken from them. This is really the first time in Matthew where he says anything about being taken away or having his public ministry end. Because he says there in the middle, in the end of 15, bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. That's the first time they're hearing that. And so we do, we do fast. The bridegroom has been taken from us, and we're fasting. We went over the purpose of fasting in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You can go to the website or download that. Then he gives something interesting in verse 16 and 17 related to the kingdom of God. He says, No one shut, puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The, the, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus is really bringing this this whole idea of the fasting and the rituals and all these things and he's expanding to help them understand what's really going on here because Jesus didn't come to repair or reform the old institutions of Judaism. He came to provide a new covenant and Hebrews says the book of Hebrews says that the new covenant is a better covenant. It's better. So, God wasn't going to use the shell of what was left over from the old covenant and, and infuse all the truths and reality and the spiritual, um, um, uh, you know, principles of the new covenant because it's so much bigger and larger than what that shell could hold. Just like with this old wineskins, you don't ever do that because they're not, the wineskins are not, they've already been, um, they've already aged. So any new acid or new, you know, wine that comes in or grape juice, it can't process it. It's going to burst. Or you put a patch, a brand new patch over an old garment. The patch hasn't shrunk yet. So when it shrinks, it's going to break, break away from the garment. He says, though, just like that, what I'm doing now is a whole entirely new thing. We're not patching anything. We're not putting something new into something old. Something brand new, entirely new is being made. And that's the church where I can take people of Jewish descent and people with no Jewish descent, the Gentiles, bring them together into one body of Christ. And, and that's the new thing that I'm doing. The old uh, shells could never contain it. Then verse 18, while he spoke these things, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. So this, it's interesting, the ruler believed if you just put your hand on her, she will, be, she will live. The Roman centurion that we saw just said, speak the word and she'll be healed. So there's different ways that faith can be expressed here. And, and the disciples followed him and they wanted to go and with him. Of course, this is how they would learn. They were learning all these different ways. This is the first time we've seen this. The disciples following Him around. We know that they were doing that, but it makes a point to mention that the disciples followed Him to this, to this person's house. And they are learners. A disciple means a learner. Verse 20, And suddenly, so that's happening, wasn't expected, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touch the hem of his garment. And likely this was the 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 fringes or the tassels of his prayer shawl that they would wear over like that, and it would hang down. Because she's saying in her mind, If I only verse twenty-one said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. In other words, I don't even need to touch him. I just need to touch part of his clothing, and I will be made well well but jesus turned around and when he saw her he said be of good cheer daughter your faith has made you well and the woman was made well from that hour jesus could have been walking and could have sensed the virtue leave him as where it's described in other gospels and could have known that that happened and just kept walking nothing would have been wrong with that but he'd made a point to turn around and we heard in other gospels what he would said and we'll get to that when we when we're there, but he mentions in this account here that, that your faith has made you well. And he calls her daughter and he's, you know, he says, be of good cheer again. Again, he's caring for the whole person. He's encouraging her. She's thinking, you know, possibly that she stole this from God. You know, that it, he didn't give permission. She just kind of, as if God can, you know, his healing power can be stolen. But you, I mean, she just thought, I'm just going to touch the hem of his garment. I'm going to go my way. No one will know. I won't bother anybody. But he wants to make a point, wants to encourage her. He could have just left her walking away healed, but but not uh, acknowledging that he was blessed by it and he was 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 fine with it. So he says, daughter, you know, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Now he said that loud enough where everyone around could hear. Again, he's emphasizing faith. We see that as a pattern. He wanted everyone around to hear that this woman had faith and she had, she had been healed. They didn't know what of. Jesus knew. They had no clue what she'd been... Maybe they knew her. I don't know. But but he, he said, Your faith has made you well. When Jesus came in verse 23, came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, He said, to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Now, this, they had professional mourners that they would hire. They still do today, many times. They will hire professional mourners to make a big commotion and so forth. It doesn't mean that they're not truly mourning and it's just fake and all of that, but they just. To them, it's a way that they can express that they're truly mourning, that they really want this person to be mourned over. And and, and so there's all this stuff going on. And and so they they ridicule him because he said the girl is not dead, but sleeping. They ridiculed him. He didn't get bitter and walk away. Oh, no, they ridiculed me. Forget it. He has his eyes on, on the little girl. He has his eyes on knowing what he's going to do, being the good God that he is. And then he put the crowd outside, verse 25. And when he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose and the report of this went out into all uh, into all that land. So um, here he is with this little girl and he ra- he raises her from the dead. I mean, he said sleeping and he, a lot of times in the scriptures, it's referred when we die. He's referring to as sleep. Uh, he knows it's not going to be a permanent thing. Possibly that's why he said that she's not dead, but sleeping. But, you know, they, they know how to take a pulse, you know, and they're mourning and he comes and he raises her from the dead and, and the report went out into all the land. And every time these reports go out, it's working towards building that opposition that's coming that I told you about. So he knows that and he's going to heal some them as we're going to see in a moment. And he's going to tell them not to say anything, but it's a beautiful miracle Verse 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, which would be a challenge, uh, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now they use Son of David. That's a messianic title. Remember, Matthew is a Jew, writing to Jews about a Jew, Jesus the Messiah. So he's going to emphasize that these that, that they said Son of David. They acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Messiah and notice what they said have mercy on us what did Jesus just get done saying to the Pharisees go learn what this means I desire mercy so he saw that they were having asking for him to have mercy on on them and so verse 28 and when he had come into the house the blind man came to him and I believe he went into this house because they're yelling out, son of, son of David, Son of David. He's, doesn't want to, The timing of all this is important. He doesn't want to uh, interrupt or, or mess with the timing of, of when he was going to be arrested. It all is building. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? That's the first time he's asked this in this way. And they said to him, yes, Lord. That's all they said. Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. Again, focusing on faith. He didn't say, Do you believe that I will heal you? He says, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Sometimes when we pray, Lord, you are able to do this, we think that we're praying something less than praying, God, would you please do this? Just do it. We believe that you're going to do it. Like some, and we should pray that. We should pray, Lord, we're, we're, we believe this is the best thing that, that we can understand that you could do in the moment. We're asking you to heal. But if we merely, we don't need to say that. We could merely say, Lord, you are able to do this and we are honoring him. And that's all that, that they, that they, he asked for. And they said, yes. And then he healed them. Verse 30. And their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it. Again, he's trying to keep it from an, uh, going too fast. Because it will speed up the opposition. There's more people he wants to talk to. There's more people he wants to heal and so forth. This getting out too fast will hinder that and he's telling them to not tell anyone. There's, you know, Galatians talks about in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. There was a perfect timing. The day he was going to go into Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be the Messiah on Palm Sunday, Daniel prophesied to the very day. That's how perfect timing uh, was involved in this. But verse thirty-one, they didn't listen. But when they had departed, they they spread the news about him in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marvelled, saying, "It was it was never seen like this in Israel." There was this belief back then when you did exorcisms, although there wasn't anyone really doing successful exorcisms, but they would try. They would say you have to get the demon to name himself, and that will give you a a better uh, capacity to be able to cast out the demon. So obviously, and that wasn't God never said any of that. But that was just their tradition. So you can imagine this is why they're so amazed. Not just that he's delivered, but that Jesus delivered a mute demon possessed man who couldn't name their name, or name its name to him. You know when it. The man that we looked at last week that we'll, we'll see in other accounts actually said, he was, what is your name? He said, Legion. I don't believe that was the name of, of all the demons collectively. I believe that he's just saying we are Legion. And it was more of a challenge to him in a sense. And, and so it wasn't the name of all those demons and so forth. But this mute person, this mute man, he, he can't speak. He could, the demons couldn't use his vocal cords to say anything as he does in other examples. And yet he still delivers him. And the multitudes, notice, marveled and said, we've never seen anything like this in Israel. But the the, the Pharisees had an excuse for him in verse 34. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, this is touching very closely to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And in another gospel, another account, we're going to see him warn them when he's giving when he does something and he's give, he, they're giving credit to Satan. He's he's talking to them, and warning them about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're on very shaky ground here, and it's very wicked response. Again, this is the first. They're getting more bold with their opposition. We're starting to see it build now. Now they're ascribing demonic influence to Jesus, and that's the reason why he's able to cast demons out. Then Jesus went out went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. He was moved with compassion. This is the strongest way in the original language for them to describe someone moved with compassion. It was He was internally uh, hemorrhaging with compassion. He was it was from the deepest part of of himself. He was moved with compassion. What did he, What did he notice that they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And they had all kinds of leadership in Israel, all kinds of spiritual leadership. They had about five or 6,000 Pharisees and way less Sadducees and scribes and so forth. They had all these leaders, but yet they had no shepherd because they weren't shepherds. They were hirelings. They were in it for themselves. They got wealthy off the people. They abused the people. They didn't help them spiritually at all. They used the people as a means to an end to help themselves. They were not shepherds. They didn't tell the truth. They didn't represent God at all. And he was so moved. Do you think he's just as moved with compassion today? Think about all the people that don't know Christ in this world. Think about those refugees that are coming from Syria right now, moving into Europe by the millions, wandering, exhausted, with no hope. Jesus sees them as people without a shepherd. He wants to be their shepherd, And that's why I believe he goes to the last two verses and, and said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus knows that the only way people can have a shepherd is if they are, are harvested from the harvest field. The only way he can become their shepherd is if they're one to him but he says there's a lack of workers the workers are few notice he says laborers or another translation say workers it takes work it takes it's hard it's not easy and he calls each one of us to take our place in the harvest field and when we start praying to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field it, it kind of works the way that isaiah was commissioned you know he's there and he says send me that's what happens. You start praying to send laborers out into the harvest field to the Lord of the harvest, and all of a sudden you realize that you're the first one that should be doing that. <laughs> and that you need to be in the harvest field as well. How how much are we wasting our lives by not having any eternal priorities in our lives? Our whole lives are based around the temporal and things that are passing away. Or well, very little is invested in eternal things. What's important to Jesus? Eternal things. And He wants us to be engaged in those things. And it takes us to be inconvenienced and for us to work and get out there into the harvest field because it's ripe, He said. And when we're surprised when someone comes to Christ, it's because we're not believing that Jesus said the harvest is ready for to be harvested. Or else we wouldn't be surprised. We'd expect that. No one goes into an orchard around here when it's harvest time and is surprised by ripe uh, fruit. It's like, of course there's ripe fruit. It's the harvest time. This harvest is ready to be reaped. It's the same way with us. He wants us to believe that and go out into the harvest field and to work and to pray for more laborers. So as we close today, He emphasizes faith in Him. Maybe you're here and you need a healing today. Go to Him in prayer. Come up front after the service or grab someone else and join hands with them and pray. Call for the elders of the church. To pray and anoint you with oil, whatever you, whatever, however God leads you, God wants you to have faith in him to, 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 to be healed. He wants you to trust him. And he has all the grace for us if he chooses to wait to heal us or delay the healing or whatever. A lot of times these healings didn't happen right away. Ultimately, all of us will receive healing when we get our new bodies. So the atonement, when he died, when he took those stripes for us, that we may be healed that made provision for us to be completely healed one day and, and have a new body. And so for us to just go to Him in faith and trust Him and, and to focus on how faithful He is and how faithful He's always been to us and to trust Him because He's a big God. We have big needs, yes, but He's a, he has, he's a big God. He can handle all those things. Honor Him with your faith. Don't have faith in your faith. Have your faith in God, but trust Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. You'll never be sorry for that. He will do miracles. We've seen it here. There are people coming off the Holy Ghost hit list that are getting saved. He's saving people. Let's be busy about His business and let's get out into the harvest field. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to honor You with our faith. Jesus, you said if we have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, that we can tell a mountain to be moved and toss it into the sea. We recognize, Lord, that the smallest of trust that we have in you, you can do great things with. Help us to trust you even more every day that we would model that trust in you. Help us, Lord, to be around unbelievers, to be willing to... Be around them so that we could preach your amazing gospel to them. Give us confidence, Lord, that they'll receive it because you said the harvest is ready for to be harvested. Use all these verses, Lord. Help us to not forget what you say to us each week and to analyze our own life and where we lack instead of just looking for knowledge. Help us, Lord, to look at your word and, and ask where we are obeying or disobeying, Lord. We know that's, that's the way that we can protect ourselves against future storms, and that's the way we can bring you glory. So we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.